This is a Federal News Network podcast. Consider for a moment non-military crimes like murder or larceny committed by members of the military. It looked like smooth sailing this year for a bill that took prosecution of these crimes out of the chain of command. The legislation has more than 60 sponsors in the Senate and heavy support in the House. Then the letters from top brass started coming in. Now it looks like there's a big fight brewing among the military service chiefs, the defense secretary, and Congress. Federal News Network's Scott Mossioni has the latest. And Scott, let's talk about this bill and what it would do in the first place. This is an annual bill that usually comes from Kirsten Gillibrand and Jackie Spear in the House. That's Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. And it takes it's mostly catered towards sexual assaults. It's trying to uh, take the sexual assault outside of the chain of command because they had seen in the past that a lot of sexual assaults were not being prosecuted that the way they should be. They weren't necessarily going to uh, criminal uh, situations and more uh, inter intra platoon or intra unit uh, disciplinary actions uh, or being swept under the rug. So this would have created an independent civilian role that would take these uh, situations, look at them, and decide if they should be prosecuted, and then also prosecute them. Uh, you know, one thing to remember, and a lot of the experts that have uh, weighed in on this issue, is that commanders of units and commanders of commands are not lawyers. Uh, they're not, you know, versed in law necessarily. So having them uh, adjudicate certain things uh, tends to be a little bit out of their wheelhouse. All right. So it looked like this bill had a good chance of passing. Now, what's coming from the chiefs of the services? That's right. Well, this bill, first of all, was suspiciously held up. You'd think after having 66 co-sponsors support in the House that ranking members and, and chairman of committees would want to rush this through and, and say that they, they passed something. But uh, Jack Reed, the leader of the Senate Armed Services Committee, uh, did not bring it to the, the Senate Armed Services Committee. And we saw now that ranking member Jim Inhofe had solicited letters from all of the military service chiefs. And, you know, their gripes with this kind of range in, in, in really a lot of different ways. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, said that his professional opinion was that removing commanders from these decisions would have adverse effects on readiness, mission accomplishments, and good order and discipline. Now, no one has necessarily defined what this good order and discipline is, but it comes up a lot in these different uh, letters. Uh, the Army Chief of Staff, James McConville, he said that he also felt that this would uh, you know, hinder some of the, the issues with good order and discipline. The uh, Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Gilday, he also said that you know, he did not support uh, taking all of these crimes out of the chain of command uh, and that they can't prosecute their ways to fewer cases. Rather, the efforts need to begin far left of the crime and involve a cultural transformation and education, leadership, accountability, and those sorts of things. Uh, it is important to note that the Air Force Chief of Staff, uh, General C.Q. Brown, seemed most open to this bill, stating that removing elements of authority will likely create some risk, but risk needs to be taken if they want to actually create some some difference. Got it. And then enter the defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, who is, I guess, between two opposing forces right in the middle there. What is he saying about all of this? Right. Well, one important thing to note is that, you know, the military service chiefs did not say they don't think that taking 
sexual assault out of the chain of command is a bad idea. It's something that they're open to. However, the other crimes were the ones that they were most opposed to. Uh, the defense secretary would like to take sexual assault, he has publicly said this now, take sexual assault out of the chain of command, along with a few other things like uh, sharing photos without someone's permission, uh, child sexual assault, stalking, things that are related to sexual assault. Uh, because you know, these are things that, that might be adjudicated in a similar fashion. If there's stalking and sexual harassment, then their reports have shown there's likely going to be a sexual assault uh, uh, part of that. The fact about this is, though, is that reporting of sexual assaults is bad. The climate is bad, which we've seen from the Fort Hood review uh, in the Army and from other reviews. The trust between leadership and service members is not very good right now. And women and service members do not feel safe in a lot of instances. And that's where, you know, there there is this tension because, uh, you know, you're expecting these leaders to take care of their, uh, their service members. However, the leaders are not necessarily doing that. And they think a, a civilian prosecutor might be able to do that better. We're speaking with Federal News Network Scott Massioni. So if it was restricted, this bill, that is, to only taking sexual assault types of crimes out of the military chain of command, that could be complicated because suppose one service member commits a sexual assault on another and at the same time steals the cash from their drawer next to the bed or something like that. Then you've got both a sexual assault and you've got a larceny, a robbery happening also, and two crimes and one would be inside, one would be outside. I can see a lot of complication if it's if it's divided that way. Certainly, there would definitely be a lot of, of complication. And there's also a complication when it just comes to looking at what this court might turn into. Kirsten Gillibrand's concern is that this is going to turn into a pink court where um, you know the military members, it will, it will get this sort of stigma where it's just a place where women can go to air out complaints to men instead of having it be a real you know, quote unquote, court that that has actual powers, you know, this would just be the the only sexual assaults court that there is. And then everything else goes through the regular chain of command. It would just sort of take away some of the gravitas behind what this court actually meant. You know, the other thing is, is that these some of these crimes are related, as we mentioned earlier. So if you are sexually harassing someone, you know, that's very closely related to sexual assault and might help that case. And then finally, as we mentioned earlier, you know, these commanders are not lawyers and it may be better to have a lawyer adjudicate these and where service members might feel safer uh, dealing with these sorts of issues. But isn't the JAG Corps? That's lawyers. That is lawyers. You're right. But, uh, you know, a lot of these things stay within the chain of command and, you know, they are and who decides to bring these to the JAG lawyers happen to be commanders sometimes. And this would give a, a, an avenue to certain service members to just go to an independent prosecutor and uh, you know have them adjudicate things in, in a way that they feel is fit. Well, I wonder if anyone's proposed a third way where when sexual crime seems to have occurred or is alleged to have occurred, then the commanders should be strongly encouraged to bring it before the judge advocate generals. Yeah, you know, that that could be an option. And, you know, I have a feeling that if this bill makes it to markup or is somehow folded into the NDAA, there's going to be a lot of debate around it and there's going to be probably a lot of changes. Uh, I don't think that it's going to end up uh, the exact way it's written in the bill, considering the high-powered people who are pushing against it, those being the leaders of committees and the uh, service chiefs. But 
This is something that we might end up with a watered down version that will definitely change the uniform code of military justice. And it may end up being something like a trial period, which is something that uh, Army Chief of Staff General James McConville uh, had suggested in one of his letters. Federal News Network Scott Mascioni, thanks for that update. Thank you. Check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on, those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. <laughs> Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president 
uh, uh, deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to to fight for change. And that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad historic sweeping what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer, many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers, and that that attribute I think is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. 
but the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the secretary Locke, you gotta go down and sit down and talk with regular common everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government and providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.